9, verses 19 to 31. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. We have... Uh... Pastor Doan speaking with us today. Uh, why don't I just give a quick intro for him before uh, we give him a warm Lord's Love Lurch, Lord's Love Church welcome. Uh, Pastor Vin. No. Okay. Never your fault. Uh, Pastor Vin was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. Him and his wife, Laura, have uh, two young daughters, Grace and Aubrey. One of his favorites quotes is, and you can keep me honest here, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, quoting Wayne Gretzky being quoted from Michael Scott. <laughs> Classic. Uh, his favorite authors are C.S. Lewis and Timothy Keller. Some of his favorite things include family reading, family, comma, reading, coffee, movies, Top Gear, uh, The Grand Tour, which I'm assuming is an important distinction, and uh, Liverpool FC, Mariners, and the Seattle Seahawks. Please give him a warm welcome. Um, yeah, so good morning everyone and to those watching online as well. So keep the passage open. For those who have heard me preach before, I usually like to keep visiting the text and we'll sit on that. Um, one thing I will say, Jess, I know you're in the back. Don't you dare have that baby while I'm preaching, okay? <laughs> anyway, um, so keep the passage open. So look, let me start off with this. I don't know if you've uh, read the book. The book is called The Tipping Point. It's by Malcolm Gladwell. He's wrote a few interesting book, books like The Outliers and all that, but this book in particular is fascinating, especially when you get to chapter 2. So part of the premise of the book is this, is that Malcolm Gladwell was trying to discover why, you know, why certain um, messages and ideas and products, why they sort of, when they hit the marketplace and they get out there and they succeed and some don't. So the book is dedicated to this idea of how come some ideas, some products, and some messages succeed, but others don't, okay? But it gets fascinating starting from chapter 2, where in chapter 2, it starts off, he gives, the, he gives this true story and a true case 
of when America was still colonized by the British, okay? So the British was still around, you know, 1775 or whatever year it was, he, he puts the setting in, where the British were still ruling America. But then the book starts off and then tells you the story and leads to the story of this young boy. And the young boy overhears two British soldiers use the term hell tomorrow, okay? And he thinks for some reason that sort of resonates with him, like, oh, that must mean something for them to say the terms hell tomorrow and nothing else. He doesn't say anything else. He then runs to the the guy he trusts the most in his town, which is the silversmith. He tells the silversmith, this is what I overheard. And what he overheard was the term, hell tomorrow. The silversmith realizes that this term means that that the British will come in and attack across the U.S., And so what the silversmith does is he tells another close friend, and then the two go off through the night, nonstop travel, on horseback, passing the message on, hey, Americans, we got to galvanize, come together, because the British are coming. When he gets to this sort of near the conclusion of chapter 2, Malcolm Gladwell actually says... As he tracks the, mass, the message and the messengers, where the silversmith sort of travels, all those people in all those little cities and towns galvanized, and when the British came, they attacked and they fought back, and they defended those cities. But the silversmith who told his friend the very exact same message, but went to a, a, like, towards a different direction, no one believed the guy. So when the British came into those other cities, they were conquered. And so he's thinking through why did this happen? Why some part in the message where the Americans succeeded and were able to defend themselves and where others where they failed. So part of his sort of conclusion is this. He basically says, basically, he says, look, word of mouth really matters, especially if they, particularly if they believe the message that is being said. So think about it. In the great city of Vancouver, where you guys are in, one of the things that I know for sure is if I were to ask for, give me the best place to get coffee, or tell me the place that's going to serve the best, whatever it is, food, the best burger, whatever it is, most of us who live in a city like Vancouver, the best recommendations come from where? Not online reviews, correct? Though you can go to that. The best place is always what? Word of mouth. But not just any word of mouth, correct? You, go to ten, you tend to go to the person that you trust or the person who knows you that loves coffee or loves great food. And that's part of what Malcolm Gladwell is saying. He's saying part of the success is based on a few factors. He says he bases it on three major factors. He says it's basically on the law of the few, Which means, what he's saying is, only certain types of people are effective in relaying a message. So the law of the few. Not everyone can do it, but a few. The second thing he says, it's the power of context. So the environment matters, okay? Not just who says it, but in sort of how you say it and how you articulate it with the surroundings, okay? 
And the third thing he says, he calls it the stickiness factor. So does the message and how you articulate it, is it sticky? Does the message stay? Or can people repeat it almost like verbatim? Okay, is what he's saying. Those three factors. So the question now I have for this morning in regards to our text, our passage is, well, does this all apply to Paul? If this is something that happens in the natural world that we live in, does it also happen in the, this world in Acts, in the spiritual realm of all things? What part of it is that, that Paul's message, is it the law of the few? Is it the power of the context that he knew who he was speaking to and the audience and the cities that he was in? And was it a stickiness factor? Was his message repeatable to all those listening? So let, us, let me remind us of the, you know, the, even the context of the passage, right? The passage that was just read for us this morning. So just remember, right before this all happens, of what we just read, remember, Paul's conversion just happened, right? He's walking, he meets God, you know, and he hears the voice and he's blinded. And then, you know, the Lord is telling him, like, I'm, I'm choosing you to, to do all these wonderful things. And then... During his conversion, we know he's blinded. After the experience is done, he's blinded, and he can't see. And so his disciples lead him to a place. Then Jesus calls a disciple by the name of Ananias uh, to find Paul. Hey, go to Paul, heal him so, he doesn't, so he's not blind anymore, because he's going to be my instrument to the rest of the world. Then right at the end, you find out that Paul is now baptized as a Christian, because formerly he was a Jew. And so then we get to verse 19b, I think is sort of the beginnings of it all. And in that section, you find out he actually, after he's baptized, he stays for a few days with the disciples in Damascus. This is an important little phrase here. Even though the, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, sort of skips over quite quickly, what I believe is happening here is Paul is learning more. Okay, so if you look at it, he has this crazy experience with Jesus to the point where he's blinded. Okay, he sees this visible and powerful God do something, then he's physically blinded, but you know what he does? He then sits quietly with disciples, knowing that in these conversations, he's learning more about Jesus. What's fascinating is he doesn't, another major visible, physical manifestation of Jesus doesn't occur. But it's a season for Paul to sit and learn and to be taught and to discuss instead of seeking, well, well no, 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 let Jesus come before me again and let him teach me. No. It's a very regular, normalized experience that Paul is having with disciples. Then in verse 20, we find out what happens. As soon as he spends these few days with disciples just talking and learning and seeing how Christ, Jesus, has fulfilled all of the scriptures, immediately he goes and preaches the gospel. But look at where he goes to in verse 20. He goes back to the synagogues of where he was persecuting Christians. He doesn't go sort of to a new place. He actually goes to an old place where he was just a few days ago was helping the Jews to kill other Christians. That's, he goes back there. That's why it's, it's, it's so crazy for people to see now this guy just a few days ago 
killing Christians now coming in and trying to make everyone Christian. That's wild for people. And so what we need to know is that Paul, part of Paul's passion, and that's why it goes back to that section in verse 19 that's so key as we enter into this story. Because the key is that, is that as he has sat with the disciples and, 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 and conversed with them and studied the scriptures, you know what? For him as a former Pharisee, what you need to know historically or ask for our church to be reminded of historically is he would have known the entire Old Testament pretty much word for word. He would have memorized it. That was part of his job and his upbringing. And then he finally meets Jesus and he confirms with the disciples who he sat with in verse 19, all of it's fulfilled now. The Messiah, the person, the Savior of the Jews, it's, it's here. He's here. I just saw him. So he, that's why he has enough passion to go back to the synagogues and preach this message to his own people. He doesn't go straight to the Gentiles. He goes to the people, his people. And this is important for us to understand. The one encouragement I have for you is this. The hard thing sometimes for us when we read stories like this is, is that we, we want that experience like Paul Maybe not the blinded thing, but at least see, see Jesus and have, you know, have the courage and the passion to go out anywhere, to street corner, to whatever it is, to your former church, this church, whatever it is, and, and speak passionately about Jesus. That's what we want. But my encouragement to you this morning is, is that you don't need to be an expert, but you do need to be a witness. Okay? You don't need to be an expert, but you do need to be a witness. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is, through the scriptures, you have witnessed the full revelation of who Jesus is, if you've read it. But all of scripture shows us all of Christ, of what is now humanly and earthly possible. And as you witness him here, then like Paul, we will have the passion to share what's in here to whoever's out there. Okay? And so, what we then find out is this. So we find out that, you know, like Paul, for us, encouragement is that we can do the same with our mouths and also with our lives. For also people to witness, you know what I mean? The living Christ within us. Um, for many years, people, people have been saying to me anyway, I don't know if you guys watch it, but people have been saying for many, many years, the Oscars are boring until last week. You didn't think I could fit it into a passage. No, I can easily fit it. So it's been a few years where people say it's boring, it's boring, it's predictable, you can sort of tell who's going to win, there's nothing funny about it anymore. And then last week, Will Smith decided to, to, you know, smack face, whatever it is, Chris Rock. And now the Oscars are abuzz. It's like everything we're all talking about. We don't know who won. I don't know who won. I don't know who Best Picture was, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know who the act, like, actress was, whatever. But all we talk about is the slap and what's happened. Now we're going to be concerned about what's going to happen in the next Oscars. We're talking about, I think, the Grammys are this weekend or today. Or, I don't know. 
But because of that, the buzz is back in town. Now, why do I bring that up? My question to you as a church and to you as individuals that call this church your home and who have been calling themselves a Christian since day one, my, my question to you is, have you lost the buzz of being a follower of Jesus? That's my question. Why have you lost it? Are you just sort of, um, is it just because of maybe years ago when you had your conversion experience and that was the buzz that you needed, but now the, 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 the years have gone by since your conversion experience has happened and so it's whatever now? Or is it you're just going through the motions, trying to make it through every week and every Sunday? You're just getting through it, just getting through life. It's already difficult. Life is already difficult itself. Or should we not look at our salvation story, our conversion story, our, our story as a disciple of Jesus? Should we not wrestle with it, as the Apostle Paul would say, with fear and trembling? In Philippians chapter 2, you don't, it's not going to be up there, but I'll read it for you. It's important because this is Paul's word. This is Paul's word way after, many years after his conversion experience, a crazy experience. If you think about it, Paul barely mentions his conversion experience again. In all of Scripture, he talks about other things, lots of other things, but he barely mentions his experience of seeing Jesus on the road and being blinded. But here in Philippians 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice he says, work out and not work for, okay? Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. But ultimately, this is what Paul is doing. First of all, remember that he's writing to a church and he's not writing to an individual, okay? But he's writing to us collectively as a group. So my question for us as a church community is, what is the benefit of a church working out their salvation with fear and trembling? What's the benefit? Think about it this way. Think about any sports team. Any team. Let's go with the Canucks. Why? Because I've never won anything. Um, in order to get the Canucks to stay on point, despite everything that's going on. In order for them to stay on point, you have to remind them of what? The goal at hand, correct? You have to. You have to remind them of the end goal. But if you, if you just try to get through every day, every day, every time, every playoff series, and you lose and lose and lose, yeah, you'll be defeated. You'll have nothing left. But if you remind the players, the goal each and every season is not the playoffs. The ultimate goal is the Stanley Cup. That's the ultimate goal. That's the thing you've got to remind them of. Because you know what, you, you know what it does when you bring a sports team together and, and, and you tell them about the goal? It renews their passion, does it not? When things get tough, it renews their passion. But when you remind them of the goal, it, the goal... You, unifies the team again. It galvanizes them. It doesn't separate them. It brings them together. The other thing that does that, it actually, when you remind them of the goal, it should encourage them to finish the race together. 
But the goal, ultimately, what, one of the other things, so not ultimately, but one of the other things it does is it helps them, and it helps their present sufferings and squabbles seem small. And that's the same for us as the church. But the Apostle Paul wants to remind us of the goal at hand. Remember, work out your salvation with fear and trembling to empower us, to encourage us, to unify us, to forget our squabbles and our concerns and worries about the world, to unify us, to encourage us in the faith. It does all these things and more. And that's why we do it as a church together rather than just an individual. But what does he mean literally when he says, work out your salvation, the end goal, not alone, but with what? But with fear and trembling. What does he mean? Um, I don't know. I've noticed it here, you know, in Vancouver when I watch videos. Well, when I used to live in Alberta, it was quite funny to watch what would happen in Vancouver. But now that I live here, I'm as scared as anyone, which is, you know, in Vancouver when it rains a lot during the winter, and then there's that one, t- that one or two days where it's so cold, snow starts to happen, and then the roads are wet, and they freeze over, and you can't drive anymore, and you just see trucks and cars just slow sliding down and hidden to each other. That used to be funny for me as an Albertan, a former Albertan, but now that I live here, yeah, 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 I'm scared to the point where I don't drive anymore. Now, when you think about scenarios like that, or when you, drive on a, when you drive on a highway and you almost get into an accident, a life and death situation, when you think about, about those moments in the car when something's sort of out of control, you can't control it, or when someone's coming your way and they're about to hit you and you have that near-death experience, you know what happens? Either you pull off on the side of the road or you've hit the brakes, you've, you're, you're holding onto the steering wheel so tight especially in the moments when you've hit black ice and you slide and there's nothing you can do and you just slide and you're out of control and it, let's say you don't hit something. The truth is, you sit there with fear and trembling, do you not? And you think to yourself, thank you, Jesus, that I made it. Right? That's what Paul means by fear and trembling. He's reminding you that because of his work on the cross to save you, you've escaped death. That's what, that's what happened. But it's not, he's not calling you just because you escaped death to sit on the side of the road and go, whoo, got through that, and then go back and live your life. He's saying with that fear and trembling, with the work of salvation that Christ has achieved for you on the cross, you still got to get back out on that road and live and think and breathe differently because of the work of Jesus. That's what he's calling you to do. That's what should cause fear and trembling. But some of us just walk about life as if nothing's happened. Eh, We'll see tomorrow. But tomorrow is not promised to you. Nothing is promised to you. So this should cause us, in many ways, 
If anything, if you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we should be more encouragement and more passion to go and live and tell people about Jesus, not less, like Paul. And it's not about telling the people, oh, you know what, I just escaped death, so now I've got this passion to go and tell you about Jesus. Like Paul, he gets over it. He gets over the experience, and all he can think about is, I've got to tell people about Jesus, and not about my story. So church, go and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do it for your good and for his glory. Then we get to verses 22 and 23. And in verses 22 and 23, very quickly I'll read. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded with the Jews who had lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Okay, first of all, the first thing I want you to know is in verse 22 when it says, increase the more in strength, the sort of translation, the, 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 that text is talking about that the Holy Spirit was giving him strength through that time. It's not this idea that Paul was sitting there and, and, and doing bicep curls or something. Okay, no, he was being strengthened daily by the Lord to go out and do it. Why did he need to be strengthened by the Lord? Because it's hard, people, going out there into the world. But also, it makes Paul realize everything is done in not his strength, but in the Lord's strength, in the Holy Spirit's strength, right? Because if you rely on yourself, you know what's going to happen? You're going to falter. You're going to fail. Things won't happen. Things won't succeed. It's God's work, not yours. So you don't have the credit. So you don't have to boast. But all the more you can boast in Jesus. But here's what's interesting. In between, something actually happens in between verses 22 and 23. That's not said here in Acts, but it's said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Okay? It's not going to be out there, but I'll read it for us. It says this. But when he who had set me apart, this is Paul speaking, had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. Okay? So that's Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. If you need to record it and write it down. So in between... Verses 22 and 23 is Galatians 1, 15 to 18. Okay, fit that in there. What he says is, basically, is that, like, first of all, he didn't go to Jerusalem. So he didn't go to the apostles, where the Jerusalem council was for approval for the message. He went out immediately and started preaching, went back to the synagogues. But the very key detail that you have to understand is, in between verses 22 and 23 is, Paul went to Arabia for three years. He went to study. That's what we know for sure. He went to study in Arabia. And so the, the thing you need to know about where Arabia is, is it's just, it's, the explanation of Arabia is the Sinai Desert. Do you know what's famous about the Sinai Desert? That's where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses and where Moses presented to the nation of Israel. And Paul would have felt the weight of that as he went 
to Sinai to go and study further about Jesus for three years. Here's why I bring that up. I bring that up is the natural plan for you and I, and it goes back to my story in the beginning, when I asked the question, do all those things, the three criteria that Mac and Gladwell says, do they apply to Paul? Well, the obvious answer is no, they don't. Because one of it is here is, the natural plan for Paul was, was someone with that much passion, with a conversion experience of that, with his fame, with all those things, the natural tendency, our human tendency would be, oh, a, Paul, a guy like Paul, the natural tendency is promotion, not seclusion. Right? Get the best preacher, the most charismatic, whatever it is. Get him a stage, get him a microphone, get him a big church. Let's promote, let's promote, let's promote, because he's the one that's going to be able to do the work. But what does God do here? What does God call Paul to do? Instead of promotion, calls him to seclusion, to the desert for three years. No fame, no glory, nothing. That's what Christ calls him to. But the time in the wilderness with Jesus would have helped Paul know the depth of who Jesus is. Would if he would have seen Jesus in Scripture go in line and say, this makes even better sense. It is more glory to Jesus. It is beautiful, more magnificent than I can ever imagine ever before. So for Paul, who, who is Jesus? He's discovering all that. And as he discovers that in the three years... He's realizing Jesus is that continual source of love, joy, peace that never ends. He, it's a well that he can keep going to, keep going to all the time. Because even after his conversion experience, something that's crazy and magnificent, seeing Jesus in person, being blinded by that, then being prayed for and being healed, been then studied for three intense years of studying who Jesus is, Paul can still confidently say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, what? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's what Paul says. So even after the most amazing experience with Jesus and the most intense study for three years, years later on when he's in a prison cell and he writes to the church in Philippi, he still says, I want to know Christ. Would we say that? Because the truth is, just like Paul, healthy disciples who want to serve God spend time with Him. That's what's going to make a healthy disciple. Think about it. Think about uh, other characters. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, right? Because he was a prince of Egypt, he had money, he had glory, he thought he was somebody. But then he spent 40 years as a shepherd, learning he was nothing. Jesus spent 18 years preparing for a three-year ministry stint. 18 years. Um, you know, my conversion experience... It's sort of dramatic like pause, but you don't need to hear about it. But I meet more people like my wife, Laura, who's here. My wife, Laura, is like, I would guess, like most of you in this room. Okay, majority, I would say. Or at least 50%, which is, and the stories I hear are, 
I was born into a Christian family. You know, my parents took me to church and Sunday school every week, blah, blah, blah. I went to some, some camp and accepted Jesus for the 50th, 50th time. By the 50th time, I knew for sure I was, a, I was a Christian. Well, like, whatever it was. Then I decided to get baptized, but I went through a class, wore a stupid white robe, got in there. The robe gets wet, gets heavy, and I hate wearing a dress, but that's what it felt like. You know, whatever it is, whatever story you want to tell. Most people tell that story or something very similar to that story. The danger in, in, in when you guys tell me stories like that is this, is that when you hear conversion stories like mine, you know, um, or conversion stories, especially like Paul, the, 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 the tendency for people to say is this. They say stuff like, I hate my testimony. I wish my testimony was more like yours, Vin, or more like Paul's. Right? They want the, this dramatic story, you know? For those who don't know my story, yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I came out of prison, you know, I was in a gang, I was selling heroin for at least, you know, quite a few years. And people want that. Oh, well, let's have some drama into it. So much drama, like a Will Slap, you know, Will Smith slap in the face. Give me something like that. But the truth is, let me tell you why your story is just as magnificent as anyone else's. The truth is, if you look at the world, our culture, our society, it'll be like my analogy for that and for your life, for my wife's life, and God willing, by His grace, that He would save my children in a safe and loving environment is that you've got to imagine it like being in a devastating car crash, devastating, where all the airbags go off and there's all the windows are smashed and the whole car is crumpled and you walk out completely unscathed. For you as a Christian, that's what it'll be like to be growing up in a Christian family and everything's gone well for you and you can still call yourself a disciple of Jesus. That's what it's like. That's a miracle. It's a miracle that only the work of God can do. But you don't want to tell that story. Why don't you want to tell that story? You know why? Because you don't realize how bad it is in here, but also how bad is it out there. If you work out and you recognize your sin and the sins that sort of corrupt your, your head and your heart, but also corrupts the world, you'll realize, wow, how did I get out unscathed? Then you will start to glory in Jesus more. Then we quickly go to sort of verse, you know, 23, 24, 25. I won't read it. But as it goes on, you find out that Paul, after a time of seclusion rather than promotion, he's been studying for three years, he goes, and after studying, if you were to ask most Bible college students, just like myself when I was one, most of us think once we get out, oh, it's glory time. I'm going to go out and change the world. I'm going, to be the, I'm going to have a great church with like, you know, a million people, blah, blah, blah. And the real world, like Will Smith, slaps him in the face. I brought that up three times now. Amazing. But you know what happens? As Paul, he spent this time trying to preach and learn and learn and learn. Tell you what happens. He has to escape death. 
to the point where there are people guarding the gates day and night waiting for him. And he has to be let down out of a window in a basket. How's that for glory? But wait, I thought the Christian life was supposed to be good to us. I thought it was supposed to be a little bit comfortable. I thought things were supposed to get better and nice. Not according to Paul, where he has to escape death. What's interesting is, as you continue to read Paul's letters, beyond, you know, after what happens at Acts, but all all throughout his epistles, Paul could easily boast about many things in his letters, can he not? Many things. And sometimes in certain parts of Scripture, he does give you a little list of what he could boast in. How is a Pharisee of Pharisees? How is a, uh, a Jew beyond any other Jew? For the law, he followed it like, you know, to a T. He does, but you know what he does? He then shies away from that. He goes, this is what I could boast in, but this is what I prefer to boast in. I prefer to boast in Jesus. He gives you a short list of what he used to be, even though he could expand on it, but doesn't, but he expands on the list of who Jesus is. Do you know what, what part of the reason why, because Paul's name was originally what? Saul, right? Do you know the meaning of the word Paul? The meaning of the word Paul means small. That's what it means. Paul means small. His name will continuously reminding him, for you are small. You are small. You are smaller and small. As Christ gets bigger and more glorified, Then, as the the passage goes on in verses 26 all the way to 30, after a time of his escape, he then goes to Jerusalem. And we find out that um, one of the things we find out is that he he confronts the Hellenists. So the Hellenists are people, um, they are like religiously Jewish, but culturally Greek, okay? So religiously Jewish, but culturally Greek. So that's sort of helped to shape them. Um, if you didn't know, like the Hellenists were the ones who sort of helped to get the Septuagint together, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, that, that's that's part of their their core to fame. But the Hellenists were the same crowd that killed Stephen. Okay, it's the same crowd. If you don't remember, back in about what is it, Acts six, where Stephen is stoned. That's the same crowd that is now dealing with Paul, and they want to kill him now. So don't, don't think these guys are nonviolent, that in this is going to be a nice conversation. Paul can get potentially stoned and killed here, but he doesn't. By God's you know, grace, he, he gets out. But then we find that he goes to Jerusalem. He finally goes to Jerusalem where the council is, where these you know, elders, where the apostles and Peter and John are and all these guys and they're, they're standing there before, and they, they see Paul, and they know of Paul. They're scared of Paul. That's what we're told. Because they don't believe in his conversion. It's too big. It's too dramatic. It's too quick. And some of us can look down on, down on that or be like, whoa, 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 you know, whatever. But the truth is, it's actually quite rational and reasonable for the disciples to be fearful of Paul. Okay? And the beautiful thing is Barnabas comes into the picture. 
Now, Barnabas' name is what? Son of encouragement. It is Barnabas who brings him, and in the Greek terminology, it doesn't say exactly, but it does imply in the section where Barnabas leads Paul in that meeting, the Greek implies that Barnabas grabs Paul by the hand and holds his hand in front of the Jerusalem council and says, I heard this guy, I've seen this guy, he is converted. That's a beautiful picture of Barnabas defending Paul, his brother. So now my question to you is, don't we all need encouragement? And my follow-up question is, who can you encourage this week? Especially coming out of COVID. We finally get to the very last verse, verse 31, and it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. My statement for you as we sort of get to this end is, who we worship defines how we worship, right? So who we worship defines how we worship. Let me put it to you this way. Um, it's never happened in my life, so I just imagine it. I just, it's a scenario that I play in my brain. Um, imagine if you stood next to a supermodel. Whoever, I don't know who a supermodel is anymore. Um, but imagine standing next to a Calvin Klein model, not an underwear model, just a regular model, okay? Get your head out of the trash. But just say a regular, most magnificent, beautiful model. When you stand next to a model, a regular Joe Blow like you and I, you know what that should make us do when we stand next to a model? What should it do to us? It should, whether you like it or not, make you feel really ugly. Right? You're sitting there comparing like, I, I, I can't even. No matter what I do, I can't muster up that beauty. I just can't. It should make me feel completely small, should it not? This is why in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 4, it's a famous passage where Isaiah sees God in the temple. And the passage goes that when Isaiah sees God in the temple, you know what happens? He doesn't even see God fully. He sees the train of his robe, but in the translation in the Hebrew is, he sees the hem of his robe, which is what? The hem is the end of like, think about your pants or whatever it is, the end of, you know, the skirt, the pants or the jeans, and then the beginning of the stitching, that part. He says that's all he sees of God in the temple. That's all he sees. And he realizes God, because the other things that makes him realize it, because the whole temple fills with smoke, and the whole temple is shaking. And then the seraphim come in, and give glory to God. They, they're singing and praising God. That's what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. So who we worship defines how we worship. Because you know what happens when Isaiah sees God in the temple and it's shaking? He only sees the hem of his robe and he sees smoke and all these things. He then says, woe is me, is what he says. Uh-oh. He's basically saying, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Because I am a man of unclean lips 
and I live with people with unclean lips, and I, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what he says. And then the picture goes, the story goes, that the seraphim, these weird angelic creatures, come and get a burning coal and touch him to heal him. Then God speaks and says, hey, whom should I send? To the, to the nations, to go and tell the nations about my glory. And he responds correctly by saying, send me. Send me. That's how we should respond in front of a great. Because you know what? The truth is, even go back to my analogy of standing before a supermodel. The truth is, in that scenario, I don't expect a supermodel then to come to me and say, you know, with his big buff muscles like James or whatever, to come to me and say, oh, Vin, you're not, you're not, you're not that small. You're pretty muscly. And I know he's lying. I know it. You know, I don't expect a supermodel to come to me and say, no, you're not that bad looking, Vin. I don't expect that at all. I don't believe it. The great news is God, in His brilliance, in His magnificence, in His holiness, doesn't come and condemn you. He doesn't come and point the finger like, you bad, bad person. What does He do? He heals you. He loves you. He restores you. He reconciles you back to Himself. Does He not? And adopts you as a son and as a daughter. That's what the God of the universe does. Going back to this passage in verse 20, there's a key word there. And it only happens once in all of Acts. Once. And as Paul says it. In verse 20 it says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, this is Paul saying to what the people in the synagogue, He is the Son of God. Only says it once, Son of God, once. Why? Let me give you a bit of historical pieces of what Son of God is. In the Old Testament, the angels were called sons of God. In the Old Testament, Israel as a nation was called Son of God. In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were called sons of God. And as you go you know, further to the end of the Old Testament, the Messiah that was to come was known, was becoming known as the Son of God. The terminology of Son of God is letting people know it's connected to the word obedience. And so Jesus, in all his divinity, in all his godness, in all his humanity, right, in all his humanness, was obedient to the Father to the very end, despite whatever. Same goes for Paul. That's why he uses that language. Because the truth is, holiness should cause obedience, okay? Holiness should cause obedience, You know, church, I titled, this past, I titled this sermon Proclamation and Population. Because as I believe as we preach Christ, the church grows. 
That's what I believe. Jesus doesn't give us that, that, that sort of maybe the exact details of success and to build a church and you know, this you know, three-step program of what you need to do in order for the church to grow. What we do know for sure is, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, no matter what, he says, I preach Christ crucified. That's it. That's all he says. And as you read and you continuously read the book of Acts, you know what happens? All these weird things happen in the book of Acts. There's constant persecution, martyrdom, and dispersion. It happens over and over again. And you know what? Sometimes the following wording that happens out of that, every time there's someone that dies, someone that's persecuted or put in prison, or, 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 or the church has started to disperse, you know what happens? Look at it carefully. Every single time the term is, and the gospel was preached. That's what it says. And then, what is it? Then sometimes it gives us a number of how many people joined the church. So do that. So church, be encouraged and preach Christ crucified because it's not about us. It's always about him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks. And we come before you and we celebrate and we think through you being crucified. Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, would you stir in us the passions, not just for our conversion, but for the goal at hand. Help us to remember that day in, day out, Lord God. And this message is not just for us, but it's for all those who have not heard about you yet. Jesus, give us boldness, passion, joy. And Jesus, thank you for reminding us for that. All of us that come before you, that come before your throne, that enter into your presence, you don't condemn us. You restore us. You redeem us. You reconcile us. And so Jesus, we thank you for your life, your death, and your resurrection, and your eventual return. Oh, what joy it would be. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.